If you would, for a second, turn to Romans chapter 15. We're just going to read two verses and then, and then we're going to look at something in 1 Corinthians. Romans 15. Let's read verse 4. If you would, read that with me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just to your right there. 1 verse here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Same theme, Paul writing, different church. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now these things, speaking about um, the Israelites in the Old Testament, now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So we will begin today a new emphasis that will take us over the next um, six weeks. Um, We actually are not starting officially Habakkuk today. We're doing all of the backdrop so that we can kind of understand when we start Habakkuk next week what the setting and what the context of it all is. So just to give you a a synopsis of where we're going today, Habakkuk would have been a young boy growing up under the reign of a king named Josiah. He was one of the greatest kings when the kingdom split. Uh, There was a northern kingdom that consisted of the ten tribes. The southern kingdom consisted of two tribes. He would have been a part of the southern kingdom, and he was an incredible king. He was the 16th king um, of the kings uh, during the division of the kingdom when it split, and he was amazing. So Habakkuk, <coughs> excuse me, would have uh, grown up under that to see once Josiah dies, a new king comes in and everything begins to fall apart. Every reform that Josiah, we will see today, institutes is discarded again, and everything that Josiah's father and grandfather had put in place come back again. And so Habakkuk wrestles with God, we will see. He has some big questions for God. God, why are you allowing this? Why is is this happening and taking place? And I think the only way to really fully understand all of that is to understand what he probably grew up in. He grew up in a time when it, it was good all across the nation. There was no idol worship. There was no falseness that was there. There was a direction that was that was centered on God's greatness. And now Josiah dies and everything has fallen apart. And so we just read two verses there, both written by Paul in Romans chapter 15 and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And what Paul is emphasizing there is this, is that the Old Testament has tremendous value for our lives. Did you note that Paul said twice the same thing? These things were written, grounded in what happened in the Old Testament, written now for us in the New Testament under this new age of grace, And they were written down for us for our instruction. What kind of instruction? Well, in one of those verses, Paul says, for our encouragement. The Israelites at times did things right. They did walk with God. They did have great passion with God. And so so some of those stories are, are great for us to see the passion that the nation of Israel had. But there's also a warning that's there. Because for most of their history... They didn't faithfully walk with God. And so there are tremendous lessons to be learned in regard to what happens and what comes when you don't follow 
the Lord. And so the Old Testament has great, great value for us. Um, you, you will from time to time hear famous people within the evangelical faith say the Old Testament is not that important, and they are wrong. They are just simply wrong about that. There is such value to look at that. The Old Testament pointing to the coming of Christ. The New Testament unveiling the revelation of Christ being in our midst. And so we're going to spend the next six weeks in the Old Testament. And I'll assure you there are some unbelievable lessons that will happen um, for us. So we're going to talk about reform today. We're going to talk about spiritual reform today and what that looks like when God revives a people, when God revives a life, a family, and what that looks like. So I want to ask you now to turn to 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament, chapter 33, and and we will see some things there uh, in a moment. So when we talk about reform, and we talk about revival, we talk about awakening, we are talking about something that God does. Would we be in agreement about that? That if a spiritual awakening is going to come, it's not going to, become, it's not going to come because I'm an eloquent speaker, which I am, amen, right? Okay. So that's not, that's not how reform happens. Reform happens when God awakens a people. This is God's work. Awakening is always God's work. Now, God will find people in agreement with them who are willing to walk in obedience to His commandments. And when they agree with God and He begins to move, then God's Spirit is poured out upon a people. And I'm reminded of a great verse in the Old Testament. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 4, verse 6 said this. He said, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, that God does things. So when God awakens people, it's not going to be because of man's power. It's not going to be because of man's intellect. It is going to be because of God's might and mainly through the power of the Spirit of God moving in people. It has always been the same throughout history. If God ever awakens a people, if revival or reform comes, it is going to come about because of the Spirit of God. Another aspect that happens when God begins to move among a people is that those people are awakened by the Spirit of God always to come back again to the truth of the Word of God. So when God awakens people spiritually, He does it by His Spirit. And when He awakens them by His Spirit, there's always a returning back again to what those people who needed reform needed most, which was to return back to the pathway of walking with the Word of God. And so when you look through the chronicles of church history... Old Testament, New Testament, and then even after the New Testament age and the scripture was finished writing, and you look at church history, and you look at reform, you look at revival, God has always by His Spirit, bringing people back to His Word and in a heart of repentance, moves His people out of a place of indifference to God and moves them back to Scripture. And when He does that, there is a deeply solid place in which His people are standing again. So when the Spirit does this, new life comes, and the result is is what we would call revival, reform, whatever the case may be. But God's people are awakened once again to Him. I long for what David wrote in Psalm 85, verse 6. Listen to these words. Will you not revive us again? 
that your people may rejoice in you. And I can't think of anything that we need in our American culture today to see God awaken His people again. And when God would awaken His people again, what would we naturally do? Just what verse 6 says there of Psalm 85. We would rejoice again. There would be rejoicing that God has moved by His Spirit, calling His people back to the Word. And as He awakens us, we rejoice in the reality of who God is. Another aspect of awakening always comes, and I mentioned it a while ago, one key thing that is always there anytime God has awakened His people throughout history, and that is a fervent proclamation happens again of the Word of God. There are people of God who begin to proclaim, tell the story. There is great preaching. There is great telling again of a proclamation of, of calling people back to walk to the truth of God's Word. And so it happens always, and I love reading about the two great awakenings that have happened um, in our country, and, and you see that there was great clarity in the preaching when it had been missing for a, a long time, and there's great power that took place in the preaching again. When the Word of God is preached and it is majored on, it is always saturated in prayer when God brings about awakening. So I've been praying this week, I prayed this morning when I got up, God, would you, would you anoint this message? Not because I wrote it, but would you anoint the message because we are going to read the eternal sacred word that has come from God's very wisdom, that, that is His and the power and the might of God. Would, would God awaken us and begin to call us back to seeing that His might, not our intellect, not our wisdom, not our thoughts, not marketing, that His power, His Spirit, His ways would awaken God's people again. Are you with me? We've had enough of the other, have we not? And look where we are. We've had enough of marketing Christianity. Christianity is something about being alive on the inside, having our hearts alive, and living out that reality in the world. A reverent fear of God has been lost in our Western culture. The church sometimes can just drift along and find that um, Sunday after Sunday in our comfort, we forget who God is, how mighty He is. Sometimes we think He's just somebody that we use and casually think of, and when we need Him, we'll call on Him. But many times we just go and we just exist and we just live our lives and it's no wonder because of this that the church in the West is apathetic, it is lazy, it's built on pragmatism, and in many ways it has lost a God-centered, biblical perspective of who He is. I remind us this morning, our God is big. He is big. He is mighty. He has all wisdom. And we need everything about Him. So I want to set the stage for us today when we get into the prophet Habakkuk next week, and you better come next week knowing where that book is. I'm not going to wait on you to find it, all right? So I don't know what you need to do to do that. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. Um, uh, And Habakkuk's going to have some real wrestlings with God, and I think a lot of it has to do with he grew up in what we're going to look at today. So... um, I'm going to give some background. I know Mark gave some good history last week. Are you all okay if I give two weeks of history a little bit? Um, 
And I'm going to talk initially about the kings of the Old Testament. Because I think this is important for us to understand why Habakkuk was even needed. And it has to do with the condition of the leadership of the kings. So in 715 B.C., a king by the name of Hezekiah, he's a king of the southern kingdom, he, he comes to the throne at a young age. He's a really good king. And it's during his reign that the prophet Isaiah is alive. And Isaiah begins to speak to Judah about part of the history of their walking with God, rejecting God, walking with God, rejecting God. But Hezekiah serves God. He's a great king. And so God holds off the coming of Babylon to the nation. So through Isaiah, God is saying, Judah, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you because of the way you've been living and the way you've rejected God's ways. And so, so, this, so, so this is coming. But because Hezekiah loved God and walked with God and led the nation um, to do the same, um, God held off his hand in that. But then Hezekiah's son was a guy named Manasseh. He ends up being the worst king in the history of both kingdoms. Terrible king. He has a son named Amon who, Manasseh, by the way, reigns for um, 55 years. Um, Becca, go ahead and let's put that up there, I think. Maybe do we have that? So um, we're going to read this here in a second. But let me just kind of walk you through the history. So Saul was the first king of a united Israel. He had no heart for the Lord. He just kind of was a big guy, military kind of guy. David becomes the anointed king, God's choice to be king. David had a son, so when David um, dies, his son Solomon becomes king. Solomon, if you know anything about Solomon, I'll just tell you this. Solomon started really well, but then Solomon did not finish well. And uh, he had what we would call a half a heart for God. So David, God said about David, David had a whole heart for God. He had a heart that sought after God, and so, so God gave a bunch of affirmations. So Saul had no heart, David had a whole heart, Solomon had a half a heart. And so when Solomon dies, um, the kingdom divides. So ten tribes go to the north, and there are ten tri- or two tribes to the south. The king, the first king to the north, is a king called Jeroboam. And what happened was, the temple is still in Jerusalem, and he becomes fearful. Three times a year, the Jews would have to go down to Jerusalem for the festivals to celebrate things, and he began to think to himself, if they keep going back, if my people that I'm ruling over keep going back to Jerusalem and experiencing authentic worship, they're going to want to go and live down there, so I can't do that. So Jeroboam thought to himself, I'm going to make two places of worship in the northern kingdom. One's going to be in Dan, and one's going to be in Bethel. By the way, both of those two cities have great rich spiritual heritage, but he made them places of idolatry. So what he decided to do was this, I'm going to make two golden calves. And I'm going to put one in Dan so the people can go worship the golden calves and they won't go to Jerusalem. And then the other will go to Bethel and they will worship a golden calf there. Does that sound very good? Now, before that happened, obviously that's not what he was supposed to do. God told him, listen, this is the case. You're going to be the king over these ten tribes. And it will go well with you if you do one thing. If you will lead the people... To walk in my word, I will give blessing to you. I will continue to give blessing even though the divided kingdom has come. His very first action is to not follow through with the word of God. And so God begins to to bring about a number of different things. And so eventually over time, Manasseh comes to the kingdom and he reigns for 55 years. 
He's terrible. He's the worst king. Let me give you some background about him. He disregards God's law, fully embraces the culture, the theology, and the practices of the Canaanites, not what God had told them to do in the scripture. So he placed altars of the Canaanite gods and goddesses in Solomon's temple. Comes into Solomon's temple, sets up these idols inside the temple. Along with instituting temple prostitution in Solomon's temple. They also practiced child sacrifice. Even Manasseh himself sacrificed one of his own children to do that. His sin was so bad that Isaiah, who was still alive, tells Judah that God has removed his hedge of protection over them. They're kind of on their own because of Manasseh's sin. His decadence for evil lasts 55 years. All of those things remain in the temple for 55 years. Well, his son comes to the throne and he reigns for two years and he's eventually killed by some rebels. So listen to this. For 50 Seven years. No one in Judah and no one as well in the northern kingdom because of its spiritual condition has seen anything other than idolatry and immorality. The temple is not being used to worship. And and so this, this is the case. No one has seen biblical worship for 57 years. There are few left after 57 years who have experienced what authentic worship looks like. How are you supposed to do things? Gone are the days of good King Hezekiah and what he did. So when Amon dies, they take an eight-year-old boy named Josiah and they put him on the throne. And the scripture tells us that the people put him on the throne. God didn't put him on the throne, but God sometimes says, watch what I can do. Does he not? You want to put an eight-year-old on the throne? Well, I'm going to do something in that eight-year-old's life. And he's going to radically transform and he's going to bring great reformation among the people. I want to say this. I know today is 9-11. For a while we lived in Germany from 2004 to 2008. We were church planters in Germany. Um, Do you know what they don't teach in the school system in Germany? The Holocaust. Why would you not? We must be people, listen, we must be Christ followers who understand history. History always repeats itself. Sometimes not in a very long time, sometimes in short time. We should know things. Some of you kids and students in the room this morning, we lived in a time that is not like this time now. This is some of this stuff that's going on that's become legal and become out in the open. There was a time where some of us grew up and we didn't see any of that. It was not mainstreamed about homosexuality and, and all the things like that. We grew up in a day like that. All you have known is that this stuff is on, in every television show. It's constantly on the media. It'll be probably on commercials today at halftime and during the football games. It is constantly a lot of this stuff that we, some of us grew up and we didn't know about. And it's all that you know. Why is that the case? That is always the case because there is a grave leadership problem in a nation and among God's people. And when those two things have given no consideration at all to God and His Word, which our nation, by the way, has a tremendously rich spiritual heritage. 
great heritage. But when you have a government now that is anti-God, anti-the truth, and then you have leadership in a lot of spiritual places talking about a number of other things, you have Judah's condition and you have our American culture condition. And there is only one answer. And that is for the Spirit of God to move in power again, to call His people back to the Word again, for the Word to be preached and proclaimed with clarity again, and then God will awaken His people. Do you know what our country needs more than anything? It's not that the lost culture would immediately come to Christ. That would be awesome. But we know how this works, that when God awakens His people, what happens with the lost? They come to faith. That's how awakening happens. Peter writes of this in his first letter. Becca, sorry, hang on with me. We're just, we're, I'm just going with it now, okay? Y'all just hang with me. Peter writes that judgment begins at the household of God. And when God awakens the church and his people, then there's influence in the culture. And this is what we must pray for, life point. This must be our great passion, that we are the kind of people who pray for God to awaken His people. For when He awakens His people, then He can bring, the, His people can have influence once again on the government, local, national, state. And then the church is awakened, and they are awakened because they want to tell about the glory of Christ to a neighbor, to a co-worker. And then you see this throughout history, that God does this great work in the lives of people, in the lives of a nation. And so this is where we are and what we're going to look at today. And so look with me now in 2 Chronicles chapter 40, 30, uh, 34. excuse me, And let's begin to kind of walk through this. And I want to point out some important things for us today that are really important. 2 Chronicles 34, verse 1 through and 2. 1 and 2. So Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Listen to the summary of his life from when he was young until he was old. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, and we'll take up reading here in just a moment. I want to talk about living under the reign of man. So we have, as Christ followers, we have an interesting reality about our lives. So we live in a spiritual kingdom because we are rescued by God, by His Spirit and salvation, because of the cross, because of the resurrection. God has done this great work of, of bringing us into the kingdom, into the church, and saving us. And yet at the same time, we live in an American culture that has forgotten about God and has lost its way in, in many ways spiritually. So we live in these two kingdoms. We're called out of this kingdom, and yet we are in this kingdom here by living day to day. But we are to live by the spiritual principles of the Scripture, of God's kingdom, of walking in obedience with God here in the American culture. And so... It had been so bad for 57 years. This is kind of the way they did it. You just put the son on the throne. 
Can you fathom what it would be like growing up in a country where an eight-year-old's in the president in the White House today making the decisions? Eight-year-old. Maybe that would be better, some of us are saying. <clears throat> um, so he's eight, and he begins to reign, and he reigns for 31 years. He's going to die in a battle by an Egyptian king who's coming to help Assyria. And Josiah will go out there and he will be killed in that battle. But for 31 years, from the time he was 8 till the time he was 39 years old, I want you to hear this. He walked with God. And his walk with God was so powerful and his desire to see reform so strong that it happened. Because God moved. His family heritage was not good. Some of us have a family heritage where a mom or a dad walked away from the family early on and you didn't grow up in a two-parent home. And you wondered about what that was like and, and all of that. And, and, or maybe you grew up in a home where both parents hated God and God uniquely rescued you and salvation has come to you and and you have known Him, and, and your heritage is not littered with people who love God. Just void of that. Do you know what God can do? He can do what He did in Josiah's life. His grandfather was the most evil king in Israel's history. His father, it says at the end of Second Chronicles 33, did more, even though it was a two-year reign, did more evil in that two years, increasing it, than Manasseh had done. Josiah's family heritage had nothing to do with with a God-centered vision and a love of God's Word, and yet his life was different. We cannot allow our, our heritage and our family. At some point in time, we have to get to the place where we can't blame, listen, we cannot blame previous generations. We can't. We live now, so therefore we live differently even if our parents in previous generations made other decisions. We are responsible for our lives regardless of what previous generations decided and made important. Now I'm going to ask you to do this. I want you to go to Deuteronomy now. And then we're going to come back to Second Chronicles chapter 17. So we have to ask the question, Why was there so much problem with the kings? What did the kings miss? Deuteronomy 17. God knew. Y'all remember 1 Samuel chapter 8? They've come out of the period of the judges. It's been a terrible period of time, about 400 years. The judges was a period of the cycle. They would love God. They would fall away from God. God would bring an enemy in. They would cry out to God. God would give them a rescuer, and he would save them again, and they would love God, and they did this for 400 years, the book of Judges. And then eventually they get to the place where like, okay, that didn't really work very good. We want a king. We'd like a king. And Samuel's going to tell them, you really don't want a king. It's not going to be good. Samuel goes to God and says, okay, they want a king, and and, and so God says, okay, give that to them, but you're going to tell them what this is going to be like. So what we're about to read here is well before they asked for a king, about 500 years before they asked for a king, and God's going to 
speak here and say you're gonna, they're going to want a king in about 500 years. And when you have a king, this is what the kings need to be like. Okay, is everybody with me right now? Y'all with me? What we're about to see here is absolutely critical. If you want to know why nations, and you want to know why our nation is in the trouble that's in, is because of the rejection of the council of Deuteronomy 17. So let's see it. Look with me first, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. So this is the instruction there. These are the laws that will concern Israel's kings. So he says in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So God was going to be the one who got to do the choosing of who the king. Now here's the instruction. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Verse 17, which king did that? Solomon. Had many, many wives, many concubines, amassed the greatest amount of wealth probably in the history of the world. Elon Musk, Bill Gates have nothing compared to King Solomon, what he accumulated. Look at the instruction. Do you see it there? When you have a king, this is how the kings are to live. This is what they are to do. So much was, was, was it in them, you know this, to go back to Egypt. They kept saying, oh, why did why you bring us out of Egypt? We at least had food there. So like, don't get horses, because horses are going to tempt you to go back to your old life. But I'm calling you forward to a better life. So now look at the next one. So by the way, 1 Samuel chapter 18, God speaks these very words. Just listen to it. Don't turn there. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations, which God told them about that in Deuteronomy 17. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done. From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods... So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So before we begin to read more in Deuteronomy chapter 17, let me just state this. God wanted to be their king, right? Is that clear there? 
they get to a place where like, no, God, we're, we're, we're done you reign, reigning over us. We would rather have a sinful man who's going to tax us and take our property, take our crops, take our sons for battle. We'd rather have that than you. When the leaders of a nation have that in their heart, that kind of desire to God, we don't want your reign. You know what you get? Just go home and watch the news today. That's what you get. This is what happens. And again, I want, you, I want, I want to emphasize this. This, this. this is talking to God's people. This isn't t- God's not talking to the Assyrians. He's not talking to the Babylonians. He is talking to His covenant people here whom He said, listen, I'm going to be faithful to you. I will be faithful because that's who I am. And His covenant people, then He chose them out. They weren't that special. He chose them out. And now they're at a place where like, we don't want you, God. We don't like your laws. We don't like the this. We don't want that. We would rather have a human being to be like all the other nations. That's what we would like for us. And so God says, okay, you give that to them. But here's the problem. God, as He always does, gives us counsel in Scripture. Okay, so in Deuteronomy 17... He says this, they're going to want a king one day. And so here's the thing about kings. When they have a king, the kings need to live by principles. And these principles will go well with the people if they follow them. So I want to, I want to show you what the king should have done that only nine of them did. Three initial kings over the United Kingdom and then 39 kings over the divided kingdom. It was almost 400 years, 290-something years for the northern kingdom before Assyria comes and takes them away, 394 years for the southern kingdom, Judah, that existed. And I want to show you what could have happened and what could happen today if God's people would embrace His truth. Look at Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. These are the instructions to the king, not the high priest, not to the Levites. These are instructions to the king that would eventually sit over Israel. Deuteronomy 17, 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, the book. And he shall read it all the days of his life. So I want to stop there for a second. Don't read forward. A lot of you, you always want to go forward. Don't go forward yet. I want you to hear this. I want us to feel the heaviness of this. He is not talking to the priests. He is talking to the kings that will be on the throne of Israel. And listen what he tells them. You're going to take out a pen and you're going to get the law that I'm giving you. This is in Deuteronomy. This is the second time Moses gives the law. So kings, you take out and you write with your own hand every word that is in the law. So every king moving forward was to write according to God's instruction here, every word of the law. Once they wrote every word of the law, note what they were to do. They were to take what they had written down and they were to give it to who? 
the Levitical priests. Why? The, the priests were going to what? Check the writing. Did the king write things accurately that were in the word? So it was checked. Secondly, the king then was... Manasseh was to do this. Hezekiah was to do this. Saul was to do this. Every king was to do this. They were to carry it around with them everywhere they went. If they went to battle, they were to have this copy of the Scripture that they had written with their own hand that had been checked by the Levitical priests. They were to carry it around with them. And then every day, they were to open it up and do what? Read it. They were to become acquainted with it. It was to be the way that they walked their steps, the way they lived their lives. It was to guide them. Now, what would God do if they did those four things? They would handwrite the law, have it checked, carry it around with them everywhere they went, wherever it was that they went, and then to read it daily. God makes a kind of a, a deal in a sense, a blessing thing with it. Look now with me. We're going to read 19 to kind of get it all together. This is what God would do. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Verse 20. That his heart might not be lifted up above his brothers. He's to be humble. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So let me, let, me, let me put this together for us. He's to write it out the law. He's to give it to the Levitical priest. Check my writing. Did I, did I copy the scripture correctly? They would check it. They would give it back to the king. He was to carry it with him everywhere he went. And every day he was to open it up and read it. And God says this, if you will do this, kings, this is what will happen. You read the word and you carry it around with you and it becomes your life. And you eat it and it's everything for you. You will learn to fear God as you rule over the people. You will have me in your eyes. And so therefore, as your eyes are fixed on me as you lead the people and you're reading the Scripture and your life is dominated by the Scripture, it is immersed in the Scripture, you are connected to the Scripture, you will do this. You will learn to fear me through the knowledge of it by keeping all of it. And then he tells them, and you've got to keep yourself humble. You're going to be the king and you will be reminded as you read the Word daily and carry it around with you that you're not above your brother's. You're not to look down and say, I'm king. You're my subject. You do what I say. He will be humble and he will think of his people better than himself. And if he will learn to fear God through the knowledge of the word by keeping all of it, and he will keep himself humble, it will keep him from turning aside from the commandment and it will keep him long in the faith. And the fourth thing that the work of the word of God would do in the kings is that it would bless his family. Now look up here, listen. When the kingdom split, there were 20 or 19 kings in the northern kingdom. Over a period of 292 years, not one single king of the northern kingdom does the Bible say was good. Not a one of them. When the kingdom split... 19 kings to the north. There ended up being 20 kings to the south in Judah. 
Eight of the 20, the Bible says, were good. You know what the possibility could have been? 39 could have been called good. But they didn't want to walk in the ways of God. They wanted to go their own way. Every one of the greatest failures of the kings finds its source as discarding the word of the scripture. So I want you to go back to 2 Chronicles now. So that's why when we find Josiah now, we see something really significant. So now we're just going to read. I'm going to point out some things and we'll finish up. Here's the summary. We just read the summary of Josiah's life in those first two verses. Now let's look in verse 3 and we'll begin reading further. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, and the carved and metal images. Let's just stop there for a second. I want to talk about principles as we read through here about Josiah's life that are really important. So he begins to reign when he's eight years old. So in the eighth year of his reign, I know it's Sunday morning. How old is he? He's 16. He's 16. Has never seen a godly example really ever in his life. And he starts walking intimately with God. And I believe this begins even at a younger age. He was unique and different. But in the eighth year of his reign, he has a wholehearted devotion to seek the Lord. He would have not fit well in a student ministry that's aimed at entertaining him. Because he was, he was all about pursuing a life of godly character. Students in the room this morning, I want you to hear this. He has no student ministry like Encounter. He has no iPod with Christian music on it. He has no ability to post Christian things on Instagram and read Christian things on Instagram from all of his friends. He doesn't even yet have a copy of the Scriptures. Students, and at age 16... He is walking with God. He doesn't have any of the things that are surrounding your life in my life when I grew up. This is a unique 16-year-old. Deep heart for God. Deep passion for God. And so it says this, that one of the principles that we need in our life, we learn from him, is a wholehearted devotion to seek the Lord. And for Josiah, it began when he was 16. Look with me now in verse 4. And, the, and they chopped down the altars of the bells in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. This is in the temple. This is in Solomon's temple. And he's destroying all the idolatry stuff. He made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali... In their ruins and all around, he broke down the altars and he beat the ashram and the images into powder. And he cut down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. And then he returned to Jerusalem. 
Here's a second principle that Josiah did that we just read there. He waged war against, against any destructive influence of idols in his life. He just waged war against it. Crushed it to powder. Got rid of everything. So we know this in verse 3 there. That um, at the end there in the 12th year. That's when he did that. So at 20 years old. As a college age student. As a young adult. This is what he did. The last four years of his life. He'd been seeking God. Walking with God. Pursuing God. Learning as much as he could. But it brought about a great conviction in his heart. Is I've got to do something about all these images. That fill the land. Because these images are calling people to walk away from God, and I want the people to walk with God so he does everything that he can to cut down every image in his life and to use every means necessary. So he chops down the altars. He cuts down the incense altars. He breaks into pieces the ashram. There were these poles that up, and they, had, they would have images on the top. He broke them down. He made dust of the metal images. You know how hard that is to make dust of metal things? I mean, he, he, he was going to get rid of everything that would not honor God. He scattered the dust of the metal images on the graves of those who had done this over the previous 57 years. Got the stuff up. They took it, found out where the graves were and poured those things on the graves of those who had done this. And he burned the bones of the priests on their altars. He did this all the way to the most northern city of Naphtali. It was a great, extensive work. So he rids things from the land. By the way, just let me just tell you this. We're not time today because it's football season. We couldn't stay at church for too long, right? That's a joke and not a joke. This fulfilled a prophecy when he burned the bones and did this that was written 300 years earlier. 1 Kings chapter 13 says this. That behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. That was written 300 years before he came. Further proof that the scripture is what? True. 300 years later, Josiah is on the planet and he does that. So we read there, now look with me when he's 26, verse 8. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land of the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, um, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, and collected from Manasseh and Ephraim, from all the remnant of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin, and from all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they gave it to the workmen. The Solomon's temple for 57 years had fallen in disrepair. So he wanted to restore the temple, and that's what's happening here. So they've asked the people, give money to restore uh, the temple. Verse 10, and they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord, and the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for the repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and temple. Uh, timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let him go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully by the way which we always should. And over them were set a bunch of guys, and I'm not going to read their names, to have oversight. The Levites, who were skilled with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did the work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. 
Look at 14. And while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. And then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, all that was committed to your servants, they are doing. And I want to stop there just for a moment. Here's a third principle, very brief. Every one of us has a responsibility to work at whatever it is that we work at, to do our best job as unto the Lord and to work skillfully. That's what Josiah asked the people to do. Sacrifice, sacrificially give. We're going to give the money to skilled people who are going to work really hard to rebuild this so that God, the worship of God, will be central again in the nation. Every one of us, whatever it is that we do, we work unto the Lord and we work skillfully to honor Him because it becomes an influence upon others. And so this is exactly what's, what's happened. And they're working for this purpose, to restore worship again in the heart of the nation. And then what happens is, let me give you just a couple more things and we're about done. So back in the day, you would keep a copy of the law next to the Ark of the Covenant. So you remember inside, we watched Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark. Uh, It's not biblical, by the way. Um, But the Ark was there. Inside the Ark was some of the manna. Remember the, the staff and the the stone tablets were there. They were also to keep a copy of the law that was there. So at some point in time over the past 57 years, likely under Manasseh's reign, I want you to watch what happened. As they're setting up all the idols in Solomon's temple, they come to the ark and it gets moved, probably. Why? Because it's in the way. So they move the ark of the covenant somewhere. When they move it somewhere the scroll, the copy of the law, likely falls off. And then as they begin to set up more idols and more idols, at some point in time in 57 years, I want you to note this, you can't find a copy of the Scripture in the temple. I want you to think about that. Can't find a copy. It's not being read anymore because you've got temple prostitution. You have child sacrifice. You have idols in Solomon's temple that God said, no, this is going to be a house for my name. And so their skilled workers are working. They obviously probably found the ark and they've got to bring the ark back. And as they are finding the ark, probably they are by each other. They find the scroll, they read it, and they come into Josiah's presence with the scripture. He's 26 now. And I want you to listen to this. He's never heard the law read before. He's never read it himself because it's been lost. So let's look what happens. 17. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. And then Shaphan the secretary told the king, let me let you know this king, Hilkiah has found a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. 
Look at 19. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Azaiah, the king's servant, saying, Y'all go inquire of the Lord for me. And for those of us who are left in Israel, note that he, he's including the northern kingdom. They were called Israel. Those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So I want us to feel the weight of this. And I'm going to say something that may cling weird in your ears. But think on what I'm saying. When is the last time for any of us, and I throw myself in that, that we have been so moved by hearing the reading of the word that we're willing to literally rip our clothes off in terror because we have not walked in his ways. I tell you, when a king does that, that will bring about a nation that changes. And that's exactly what happens. And I wondered about my life this week and I wondered about how often we, we gather and we hear God's Word and we read God's Word, but we're not torn anymore. It, it, we're, just, we're just, okay, that, that was great today. Good to see you. Glad you're here. I'll catch you tonight in Life Group. And I'll see you next week or I'll see you Wednesday night. And we're never torn by the reading of the magnificence and the power of the Spirit of God who speaks through His Word. And we're not broken. And we don't do anything about it. We don't fall to our knees. And Josiah just rips his clothing. What a sight that must have been for the people standing in his presence. And I love what he does here. He says, go talk to Huldah, this woman, and verify with her that this is the truth. Why is he doing that? He's never heard the word read. He wants to know, is this true? Is this the word and he wants to verify if this is the case. And note this. He says, listen, my fathers didn't walk in this. But the rest of the chapter, we don't have time to read it. You read it today. The rest of the chapter is this. Him doing something about what his fathers were like. Not just going, oh well. My fathers were bad. I guess we'll just kind of try to plot our way through this. No, he makes reform. He restores the festivals. He, restore, he restores so many things in the land and among the people. And I knew we'd get to this place and I couldn't finish, but that's okay. I think we've heard enough. But let me give some lessons as we finish today. And I, You need to hear this. We're going to start hearing it next week. Though Josiah responds this way, guess what's still coming? God's judgment. Now it's staved off for a bit because of Josiah's heart and the way he responded. He's told this later on in the chapter. You can read it in chapter 34. 
is he's told because of the way he responded to hearing of the word of the, God, of the Lord, that God was going to bless that and he was going to bring judgment sooner under his reign. Josiah could have gone, what a lost cause. Judgment's still coming. Why make any changes? Sometimes we say this, well, you know, when, when my job situation gets better, I'm going to get my life right with God. You know, when the kids leave the house, we're just so busy with the kids' schedules. When the kids leave the house and everything's gone, man, my, the family, my wife and I, we're going to be back at church. You know, when I get out of debt or, I, or this thing or that thing, you know, when this happens and, and my schedule's freed up, um, we're, we're back in with pursuing God, walking with God, being connected. And you know what the reality is? Those things never happen. You know why? Because new things enter into our lives. And we never follow through with empty, vain promises. And Josiah could have gone, well, lost cause, judgment's still going to come, but he doesn't do that. He says, no, we're going to be biblical. And men and women this morning, I know this is heavy, and I'm saying all of this lovingly. It is time for God's people to be concerned about the spiritual condition of our nation. It's time. We've got to quit not being concerned. And I'm not saying anybody in here has been unconcerned. I'm just saying this. We have got to be concerned about the condition of the church and the condition of our culture, mainly the church. And I don't think anything's a lost cause. You know why? Because the Son of God came and died on the cross, and because of that, He opened the door to all kinds of hope. But we must fix our eyes again on He who was on the cross. No one's life is a lost cause, and I don't think America is a lost cause either. Nor do I think the American church is a lost cause. Do you agree? God can do anything. Secondly, we must resolve to not leave any kind of space for sin or a habit to be reestablished in the land, in our lives. Josiah crushed everything, dug up bones, crushed them to powder, and poured them out. We must get rid of everything that robs us of an authentic biblical view of God. Thirdly, this is important in our day of a lot of false teaching or whatever is going on today. We must have a hardened mind that desires always to verify what's true. Josiah did that. Go talk to Huldah. Find out from her, is this all legit? Is this God's word? We've never heard it. We've never read it. I've never read it into, heard it read until a while ago. So let's get this checked out. We should be people who verify truth, particularly in a land like ours where everybody has their own truth. Which, by the way, that's not true. There's one truth. Fourthly, we must have a life. Listen to this. This is adults, kids, students. We must have a life that is ever-growing and changing. At age 8, he does what's right in God's eyes. At age 16, he begins to seek God. At age 20, he purges Judah and Jerusalem of all of the idols. At age 26, the word becomes real in his life, and he makes changes. 
So if you're, you're not, those of you who are old on earth years in the room this morning, we love y'all. As far as eternity goes, y'all are like infants. But we just have these days. And I just want to say this. We must make progress throughout the decades of our life. Josiah did. He got to live 39 years. And there were some real marked things, unique things about his life. Lastly, this is the hard one. We must live a Deuteronomy 17 life. I know the instructions for the kings. But can you think of anything more important in our lives to write down the scripture constantly? Keep it with us everywhere we go. Let it be the guardrails that we don't go to the right and we don't go to the left. We just walk straight. Can you think of anything that we need in our life just like the kings needed? Don't we need that? Yes. You know, the story of Israel could have been so different if they would embrace Deuteronomy 17. The kings, nine of them did. Eight good kings in the southern kingdom and David, Solomon for a while. And here's, here's the final thing. The blessing of God comes when his people long for Jesus. And when you long for Jesus, you will be in the word and we will live a Deuteronomy 17 kind of way. That the word will be everything for us. Students in the room, you know this. Y'all look at me. Everybody sit up. Every student look up. I'm looking at you. You know I love you. You know I love you. And I'm challenging you this morning. Challenging you this morning that things will begin to be different in your life. That though you're 8, though you're 16, though you are 20, and then when you become 26, that you will know that you have chosen the only way to go on this earth, and that is to walk with God. And you will love His Word that we teach you every week and your parents teach you. You have great leaders on Wednesday night, students. From Mike to Dan to Holly to Lindsay to Josh, and if I'm leaving out people, Mark and myself, who am I leaving? whoever I'm leaving out, sorry, um, Martha, uh, no, no, wait, uh, who am I missing? Ryan, Ryan. sorry, Ryan and Ryan. <laughs> Students, what if you took God at his word? What would God do here on Wednesday nights? What would God do in your homeschool groups? What would God do in your sports teams? What would God do at your school? What if? Let's pray.